Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 405, Harroward the Wake, The Born Identity. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month, and thank you very much to George, Sarah, and Tina for signing up already. What you're about to hear was originally intended as a members' episode. We've spent a lot of time with William over the last year, which was necessary so you could understand what was going on. But as you might have gathered over the last several episodes, we're finally getting to the part where we can talk about the British people during the conquest and how they didn't just survive the bastard, but how they fought back and how they nearly won. However, to do that, we need to look at a bunch of different threads. And as such, sometimes we need to go back in time a little bit. And I know, I know, that's why this was originally supposed to be a members episode. But as I researched and wrote, I realized that the story that you're about to hear touches on many of the things that teach us not just about this part of history, but history in general, how we study it, how we pass it down. And the goal that we set for the BHP right at the start was that we would be talking about more than just the story of one island. For those of us lucky enough to have gone to college, you've likely experienced a class that was more than the subject it taught. A class that managed to use the subject it was teaching to change the way that you thought about all subjects, because it taught you something fundamental about how the world works. It taught you where knowledge came from. It taught you how to ask questions. And you might not remember much about the specifics of that class, and who knows if you would still pass those tests today. But the skills stuck with you. Basically, critical thinking skills. For me, that class was critical in cultural theory. And I'm pretty sure that if I was tested on Voltaire today, I wouldn't pass. But a lot of the skills that I picked up changed the way I looked at the world. And I took those on to later law school and just broader life in general. And it was a powerful experience. And I hope you've been lucky enough to have it. And it's the kind of experience that I've always wanted to offer with the BHP because everyone deserves to have it. And as I wrote this episode and talked it over with Dr. Z, she pointed out that this was teaching that deeper part of history. And at the same time, as I was writing it, I was continuing to get emails from listeners explaining that they had to cancel their membership because of how the economy was turning and how they couldn't spare the extra cash, at least not this year. And I get it. Just about everyone is struggling right now. And it looks like that's especially true in Britain. This winter is going to be difficult for a lot of people. And what Z pointed out to me was that this story doesn't just hit some of my favorite themes. It's also a story that is about a struggle against impossible odds. And how, especially right now, that's a story that belongs to everybody. And so here it is. It's going on the main feed. But it also means that we're briefly going back in time, and I hope you'll forgive me for that. I think what you'll hear is going to make it all worth it. And as always, thank you to every member, past and present, because you aren't just getting little member perks. You are what makes this show possible, and it's you who ensure that this kind of education is available free of charge to everyone, no matter how hard the economy is. And so here is the story of the beginnings of Harroward the Wake. And to tell this story, we have to begin with a legend. Because nothing in this story is straightforward. Probably because at least some of it is true. Now, 
the tradition holds that sometime between 1035 and 1044, a baby was born to an upper-class family, and his parents named him Hereward. Now, who this family was is a matter of some debate. Our sources, and we'll get to them in a minute, generally agree that he was the son of Leofrich of Bourne and Lady Adiva. And so naturally, little Hereward would himself grow up to become the next Lord of Bourne. Seems pretty cut and dry so far, right? Well, the Doomsday Book throws a wrench into the whole thing almost immediately. Specifically, it states quite clearly that the Lord of the Manor of Bourne was Morcar, the same Morcar that you know from the previous episodes. And the Doomsday Book goes on to say that Morcar held that property since the time of Edward the Confessor. And so, at least according to that document, Morcar was to the manor born at the manor of Bourne. Now, the Doomsday Book was compiled by the Normans, basically as a kind of census for tax purposes. And we'll get to it in more detail later on in the show. But because it's a Norman tax document, we need to keep in mind that it is possible that the scribes got something wrong here, or that the people being interviewed for it gave the wrong information. But what if it wasn't a mistake? What if Morcar really did hold the manor of Bourne? What does that mean for little Hereward? Well, it is possible during this period to have your land stripped from you if you do something like angering the king. And some have claimed that perhaps Bourne was taken from Hereward and given to Morcar, hence the conflict between the Doomsday Book and the rest of the accounts. The trouble, though, is that there's no record of Hereward forfeiting Bourne, nor ever owning it even in the first place. So what's going on here? Well, scholars think that one possibility is that there is some sort of shorthand in the record. You know, like when everybody knows what's being said and you can just write down whatever makes sense at the time and move on. Like if a work document is talking about your whole office, but they just jot down the last name of your boss because everyone knows what they mean. And that's not a big deal until a thousand years go by and suddenly nobody knows what it meant. Another possibility is that there might have been cultural differences in how everybody understood the concept of ownership. For example, Morcar is actually listed as owning a lot of properties. But when we look at those records, we sometimes see an associated will, and those wills actually indicate that the property was functionally owned by someone else entirely, and that when they died, they bequeathed it to their heirs, not Morcar. And interestingly, there's no surviving records associated with these wills that suggest that they were successfully challenged. So the implication is that the property did transfer to the heirs, which would mean that Morcar's name on those properties might mean something else other than direct ownership. And a misunderstanding of this sort is made even more likely by the fact that the North had a very different culture, even a different legal culture in some ways, than the South. So it's possible that the Doomsday Book was referencing some sort of overarching authority or some sort of title ownership while the actual property rights of the estate itself were held by someone else. And in that case, maybe Hereward was the Lord of Bourne. But the scribes, for some reason, listed Morcar as the higher-ranked title holder. And this whole issue gets even more messy when scholars look forward into the future and they see that after Hereward's death, we have documents saying that some guy named Ogier the Breton gets a bunch of Hereward's lands. 
And when we look at Ogier's lands, we find that he had extensive properties right next to Bourne, like less than a handful of miles away. Which all makes it sound like, yeah, maybe Hereward really did have properties in Lincolnshire and his family might have had some amount of authority over Bourne. And then after his death, those properties went to Ogier. But it's hard to know for sure. And you might be thinking right about now that this actually should be an easy problem to solve because we can just look to Hereward's dad, Leo Fritsch of Bourne. Being of Bourne seems like it would pretty clearly indicate that he owned the place, right? Well, here's the trouble with that. Much of the Bourne aspect of this story is coming from two documents. The Gesta Herawardi, written in the 12th century, and the History of Crowland Abbey, written in the 14th century. Both documents claim that Hereward was the child of Leofrich of Bourne. But we have no surviving records that a Leofrich of Bourne ever existed. No charters, no witness lists, nothing. Now, we do have a Leofrich in the record, and he did hold some properties in Lincolnshire, but not Bourne. We aren't even sure if he's the same Leofrich who was claimed to be Harrowward's father, because Leofrich wasn't a rare name. And this gets even worse when Harrowward's alleged lands were later acquired by a Norman family. This family claimed that they had a connection to Harrowward through his second wife, Alftruda, which may or may not be true, since claiming a familial connection is a pretty standard trick in the Norman Conquest playbook. But... About 400 years after that, in the 15th century, the descendants of that family, who still held the property, noticed that Leofrich and Adiva sounded suspiciously similar to another famous Midlands couple. And so suddenly, they began to claim that they weren't just the descendants of the famed Hereward the Wake, they also claimed that they were the descendants of Earl Leofrich of Mercia and Lady Godiva. Yeah, that Godiva. Because according to them, they were Harroward's parents. And thus, this family had a very famous line that they were coming from. Now, setting aside our feelings about the self-serving nature of all these family legend writings, when we try and evaluate this as historic evidence, there's an inconvenient fact here for them. Namely, Leo Fritsch and Godiva were real people and there were people we know quite a bit about. For example, we know that they only had one child. His name was Elfgar. And by this time, you're quite familiar with Elfgar. You'll remember him as the guy who beefed with the Godwins, and then had his land seized, and then raised an entire army in Ireland, allied with Wales, and burned down Hereford. That is Elfgar, and he was the only son of Leofrich and Godiva. He was also the father of Earls Edwin and Morcar, the same Morcar who's listed as the Lord of Bourne. So if the Doomsday Book is correct, maybe that property did have a link to Lady Godiva and Leofrich of Mercia, but not in the way this family was claiming. And certainly not in a way that would establish a familial link between Harroward and Morcar. And the point I want you to take away here with all of this is that history isn't like Star Wars. There's more than 12 people in the universe. For example, I've known quite a few Elizabeths and Phillips in my life, but that doesn't mean that I was a guest at Balmoral. 
It just means that those names are common. So, assuming that Leofrich and Adiva were the correct names of Harrowward's parents, there's a very good chance that the names were just a coincidence, and the little guy wasn't some sort of super-secret love child that was kept off the books, while their other older child was running around leading international invasion forces into Hereford. And so now I bet you're feeling like we've got this wrapped up in a nice little bow. Harrowward was born, probably too born, and his parents were Leofrich and Godiva, who were not that Leofrich and Godiva. Got it. Good. Let's move on. But wait. Our legend is still looking suspiciously legendary. Because it turns out that both of the documents that mention Leofrich of Born are absolutely full of easily proven mistakes. The Gesta, for example, claims that Leofrich was the son of Earl Ralph the Timid of Hereford. But then it clearly confuses Ralph with Ralph the Staller, who was a very different person. Now that is obviously a massive mistake, and it makes you wonder if we should even include this document into evidence at all. But then the Gesta adds that Leofrich married a Diva, who was the great-great-granddaughter of Duke Oslak. And presumably, this was a reference to Earl Oslak of York, who ruled in the mid-10th century. And that is actually entirely plausible. So was the Ralph thing just a minor mistake and everything else is pretty reliable? Or is it a sign that the whole thing is hinky? Meanwhile, the history of Crowland named Leofrich's father as Earl Radden of Hartford, which might be a misspelling of Earl Ralph of Hereford, but then it goes on to say that he married Goda, the sister of King Edward the Confessor, which we know is incorrect because Earl Ralph's mother was actually Goda, the sister of King Edward. And before any of you start to point out the existence of the Habsburgs, no, we have no evidence that Ralph married his mum. This was clearly an error, and not the only one, because it also claims that Adiva was the niece of Duke Oslak, not the great-great-granddaughter. No, just his niece. And while sometimes people can carry children pretty late in life, there is yet to be someone who's carried a living child from the afterlife. So these documents that we're relying on for Hereward's lineage and his titles are just stacked with errors. And unfortunately, Records are not some sort of salad bar where we get to pick and choose the bits that make sense and ignore the other bits that are clearly wrong or, frankly, kind of crazy. We have to take into account the erroneous stuff and use that to judge the likelihood of the other material in the document. And so that's why I said we're beginning with a legend. Because at least for this early part of the story, we really can't know for certain what was real and what was legend. Maybe Hereward and his family had lands in Lincolnshire, but not born. Maybe his parents really were Leofrich and Adiva, but not with the family trees described in the Crowland history. Maybe, but we can't be sure. What we can say is that Hereward appears to have been born to the upper class. Later accounts tell us that he was the son of an earl, which may or may not be true. But a look at the lands associated with him in the Doomsday Book tell us that regardless of whether or not he was part of a major noble dynasty, it's clear he came from wealth. Not only that, but as we'll see in stories about his later life, his family was well-positioned enough to be recorded making a request of the king. And it was a rather messy request at that, but we'll get to that later. And based on his social standing, 
Harrowward would have been raised knowing many of the martial and courtly skills that we've come to know over the last several hundred episodes. This is a guy who would have been taught quite early in his life how to swing a sword. He also would have been taught things like hawking and hunting, as well as reading, politics, and poetry. And based on accounts later in his life, he also appears to have been raised with a degree of fealty to the church, and he appears to have been quite close with Peterborough Abbey. And that last part is actually really interesting, because there are two records, the history of Crowland Abbey and the Chronicle of the Abbot John, which claim that Harrowward was related to Abbot Brand of Peterborough. Do you remember Abbot Brand? He was the guy who was confirmed by King Edgar the Atheling. And then, when Edgar gave up the kingdom to William without even putting up a fight, Abbot Brand ended up going to William and asked to be confirmed. And William kind of went apeshit and extorted them all to hell. Well, these accounts claim that Abbot Brand's nephew was Harroward. And actually, the Chronicle of Abbot John says that Abbot Brand was Harroward's paternal uncle, meaning his father's brother. And that could be really important information because it could help us narrow down who Harroward's father might have been. But as always, there are problems with these accounts. And here's the problem with the Chronicle of Abbot John. Abbot John died in 1301. So we're talking about a chronicle that was written literally lifetimes after Harroward. And while information can be preserved in oral histories and traditions, which these records may have been drawing from, it is just as possible that there were errors in the intervening over 100 years. Making matters worse, this story of Abbot Brand doesn't exist in a vacuum. The records themselves have contradictions. And some of our better sources for this figure are well known to be riddled with errors. But at the same time, it's not out of the question that the son of a wealthy land magnate and thane would have an uncle who was high-ranked enough to rise to the role of abbot. And as Brand was the abbot of Peterborough, and Harroward appears to have had clear links to that abbey and to the lands of the region, well, despite the problems with this documentary evidence, it is plausible that the records got it right and Abbot Brand and Harroward were relatives. And if that's the case, that would make William's extortion of Abbot Brand all the more interesting and possibly even understandable. Because Harroward had quite a checkered past. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But he definitely lost some of his own lands. And if Brand was trying to secure both his lands and also the lands lost by his rebellious nephew, that could go a long way towards explaining why William was so ruthless to the abbot, even by William's standards. So where does this leave us? Well, I think it's fair to say that Harroward was born into means. His family's wealth was centered in Lincolnshire and in the lands that were near Bourne. He may have been related to the influential abbot of Peterborough, and he was raised in a manner that would befit a thane from this period. So he was both warlike, but also educated and able to walk in the halls of power. And that would be in line with how we see Harroward described in the accounts of his adulthood. We're told that he was most vigorous in war, and that he was a fully trained knight. Though, to be fair, there are other accounts that were written by communities who found themselves on the wrong end of Harroward's sword. And they describe him as a raider and a thief. Because, like I said, he had a checkered past, 
and perspective, as always, is key. So, what happened with this kid? Well, that's where things get even more tricky, because he disappears for his entire childhood. In general, kids aren't written about that much. And I used to think this was because cultures didn't value children. But now that I have a son, I realize that it might just be because when you have a kid, you can't really write at the same time. And sure enough, once Harroward is a man, he reappears in the record. And tradition is that the next time we hear from him, he's 18 years old. And the Gesta Harawardi tells us that Harroward was, quote, short, stoutly made, agile, with long golden hair, an oval face, with eyes light in color and not matched, end quote. So imagine if Gimli and Legolas had a child. And these records make him sound formidable. And interestingly, his father was still alive and kicking, which means he hadn't already inherited all the family lands. But it appears he already, at this point in his life, had quite a bit of property of his own. We see indications in various land documents and wapentakes that Harrower grew up to be a fairly powerful thane. He held both secular and ecclesiastical lands. And given the way they're discussed, he appears to have drawn income from them. And I've read it suggested that based on the properties in which Harroward is listed as holding and the terms in which he held them, that he was serving as a protector of those properties rather than as a tenant or mere title holder. And that's an important distinction for this period of English history because properties like ecclesiastical properties relied on powerful things to protect them from, well, whatever nonsense folks were up to. And given how badly things went off the rails following the reign of Athelred Unred, that was probably some really frequent nonsense. So, Protector was likely the role that Harroward filled. And that would imply that he was more of a patron than a tenant for those monastic properties. And it would also imply that his late teenage years looked a lot like mine, in that it involved a lot of Warcraft. Now, later stories of Harroward also tend to sound very much like how you'd imagine an English thane from this period. We're told that he could be gracious in victory, ransoming and even just releasing his defeated enemies when they no longer posed a threat to him. But he could also be ruthless in how he went about obtaining those victories. And one thing that sticks out in the record is that Harroward seemed to like to use fire in a fight which was something that Earl Waltheof was also recorded doing. Now, arson is undoubtedly effective, but it also wasn't all that chivalric. Setting buildings on fire or lighting up the wilderness could cause an enormous amount of devastation to your enemy, but it's rarely described as heroic. And that makes me think that we might be hearing about the real Harroward here. Because real people are contradictory. Real people don't fit neatly into a legend. And I think that we can reliably trust the accounts when they tell us that Harward was a man with a lot of power and that he was a young man probably in his late teens or early 20s and that he was tasked with governing and protecting lands through force and the threat of force. And it actually looks like it was quite a bit of land. According to the Doomsday Book, Prior to 1066, Harroward was the owner of 16 properties, 11 in Lincolnshire, four in Warwickshire, and one out in Suffolk, which is a lot. Though we should remember 
that names can and often were repeated. So while Hereward was the owner of 16 properties, we can't be sure that they were all the same Harrowards. It might have been, but it might not as well. And critically, the Doomsday Book records that there was a Harroward collecting taxes in Warwickshire in 1086, which, given the story of Harroward the Wake, it would be remarkable if he was doing that, not to mention spooky. So I think it's reasonable to assume that the Warwickshire Harroward was a different man. So chances are, our Harroward was the man recorded as governing and collecting taxes from the 11 Lincolnshire properties that were all to the north of Peterborough. And they were properties that would be in the hands of others in 1086, for reasons that will become clear. But regardless of whether he collected the whole 16 or just 11, or some combination of the lands that we aren't aware of, we are talking about a land magnate in the Midlands. And the Liber Eliensis describes him as, quote, Among freemen, he is by no means low rank, where nobility or riches are concerned, end quote. And yeah... It sounds like it. The guy seemed rich. But then something happened. Something serious. The Gesta Herowardi tells us that Hereward was generous and kind to the common folk, giving freely to the people of his father's wealth. But he was also bold and given to feuding. And that wasn't mellowing with age. One translation of the Gesta speaks of how Hereward's parents turned against him, quote, because of his deeds of courage and boldness, they found themselves quarreling with their friends and neighbors every day, and almost daily having to protect their son with drawn swords and weapons, end quote. So according to this translation, Harroward was apparently the medieval version of a shit poster, and his father, unable to contain his son, eventually kicked Harroward out. But that didn't stop Harroward, and with a band of supporters, he began seizing his father's wealth and redistributing it. He would even appoint stewards who would go and visit estates before his dad could get there and then grab the provisions that were stored there for themselves. And does this remind you of someone? The whole thing feels very Swain Godwinson, doesn't it? And when I first learned this story, before I spent all these years marinating in timelines and esoteric land grants, I had assumed that this story was just Swain Godwinson all over again. That Harroward was messy, and rather than stealing nuns and calling his mom a slut in open court, like Swain did, Harroward instead beefed with his dad so hard that he got kicked out, turned into a bandit, and then his life kind of came apart at the seams. But then I spent far more hours than I care to admit poring over charters and other documents. And as I was doing it, I discovered a footnote, and any lawyer will tell you, just like pretty much any historian, that all the good bits are always in the footnotes. And this footnote was left by the scholar Elizabeth Van Houts, and she warns us that the translation that I was reading by Swanton should be used with caution. And that's a good warning, because translations aren't a one-to-one -one affair. Culture, timing, and all manner of other things can change the meaning of a phrase, a sentence, or even a single word. I mean, if you read he took the hair of the dog and you weren't familiar with the modern idiom, you could easily think that this was a potion literally involving dog hair. Or take, for example, the term fanny pack. My American listeners right now are imagining an accessory popular among middle-aged Midwestern tourists and also Gen Z. 
but my British listeners are trying not to piss themselves laughing right now. Because words don't have an inherent meaning. They're given meaning. And those meanings change over time and across cultures. And that was an example of an English-to-English translation in 2022. Now imagine how tricky it gets when you try to translate medieval Latin into modern English. For example, the Gesta Herawardi uses the term nepos repeatedly. And that term might mean descendant, but it also might mean grandchild or nephew. And all of those are very different things and things that matter a hell of a lot when you're talking about family lineages. So I took Professor Van Hout's warning seriously, and I started to look for other translations of the Gesta. And that's when I found a different translation of a section describing why Harroward was cast out. And where Swanton spoke of Harroward causing strife, this other translation tells us that Harroward was, quote, stirring up sedition among the populace and tumult among the common people, end quote. And sedition is very different from just strife. And curiously, when his dad refused to back him up, Harroward basically went into open revolt. And so this has the potential of being a very different kind of story from the messy Swain Godwinson figure that I was expecting. I mean, if he was sending his men to various properties and acquiring provisions, that could be the simple banditry of a messy idiot. But it could also be politically motivated guerrilla tactics. So which is it? Well, it's hard to say, but due to the timing of the events, the father-son conflict had to have taken place during the reign of King Edward the Confessor. And we're going to narrow down the date a little bit by going through other documents. But that's the first thing to know. And so if the translation of the Gesta is correct, and Hereward was stirring up the public towards sedition, and now we also know it was during the reign of King Edward, well, that wasn't exactly unheard of during the time of Unsteady Eddie. The Godwins rebelled multiple times, the North rebelled, even his mum was stirring up sedition from time to time. And the Normans did try and polish this guy's reputation up by describing him as a pious, sexless monk. But the fact remains that he was Edward the Confessor, not Edward the Popular. So it is possible that Harroward, like many people, was ready for a change. And perhaps he was willing to take a little direct action to make it happen. And this wasn't just some teenager posting mean tweets. We're talking about a wealthy, militarily trained Thane. And when we look at the Wapentake of Avaland, we get a real sense of the timing here. Because this Wapentake tells us that Abbot Ulf Kettle had to take possession of one of Harroward's Lincolnshire properties at Rippingale. And he did so because Harroward had fled the kingdom. Now, we're not given the precise date for this flight, but we do have documents regarding Ulf Kettle, and we also have documents regarding how the properties he possessed were governed. And looking at those, historians have determined that a plausible date for when he acquired Ripping Gale from Harrowward would be 1062. And 1062 was a very important period. It was so important that I did a three-part episode about it titled Everybody is Killing Everybody Else and No One is Talking About It. 
If you recall, 1062 was when the conflict between the Mercian dynasty, led by Earl Elfgar, and the Godwinson dynasty, led by Harold, burst out into the open. And people were dying all over the place. Just so many people. Elfgar's son and heir, Bergherd, went to Rome along with the Bishop of Dorchester. And it looks like it was an effort by Earl Elfgar to counter the rising power of the Godwinsons. And it was so important that he tasked his own heir to handle it. And then, whoops, that heir died. Bad news for Elfgar, but great news for the Godwinsons. Because it meant that Edwin, young, inexperienced, wet behind the ears Edwin, was now the heir to the Godwinsons' primary rival dynasty. And then, later on in that same year, Earl Elfgar also died which meant that the Godwinsons' rivals were now led by that same young, inexperienced Edwin, which is just a wonderful stroke of luck. Though it wasn't all roses, because Edwin was Mercian, and the Mercians had a long history of allying with the Welsh to bolster their political fortunes. And Edwin's father had actually been an ally of King Gruffith, who just happened to be the first king of all of Wales. So, despite his inexperience, this Edwin was still a formidable opponent. But, then just a few months after his father and his older brother had mysteriously died, suddenly, there was an assassination attempt on his father's old ally, King Gruffith of Wales. And it was carried out on Christmas Day of that same year, 1062. And get this, the attempt was carried out by the head of the Godwinson dynasty. Earl Harold Godwinson. Now, the assassination failed, but that didn't stop Earl Harold, and he invaded the Bristol Channel by sea in spring of 1063 and ravaged Wales. King Gruffith responded by dragging the English into a punishing guerrilla war in the Border Hills, which apparently made Harold so mad that he became literally genocidal against the Welsh. And honestly, the conflict could have very easily broken the power of the Godwinsons if it wasn't for the fact that someone assassinated King Gruffith, successfully this time, and they delivered his head to Harold Godwinson, instantly transforming the guy into a victorious military commander. And that whole situation, that massive clusterfuck where the Midland rivals of the Godwinsons were all mysteriously dying and even their allies were fending off attempted assassinations, was all happening in 1062 and 1063. And guess who also hailed from the Midlands? Harroward. And apparently, it's right at this point where Harroward was whipping up the locals into a seditious fervor. So, while I don't know what the seditious comments were, and it could just be, my dad's a dick and I'm awesome, let's get his stuff, but assuming it was more politically motivated than that, when you look at the Wapentake and the Gesta and apply the documents regarding Ulf Kettle's actual activities around those properties and the political situation in England, it starts to look possible that Hereward might have been on the side of the dynasty of Elfgar, and it was a dynasty that was in direct conflict with the Godwinsons. And being opposed to the rising power of Harold Godwinson would probably be enough to make someone guilty of sedition, considering that in 1062, the Godwinsons were really running the show. I mean, King Edward was still kicking around at that point, but he was really phoning it in. 
And that really colors things, right? Because right as a bunch of rivals to the Godwinsons started mysteriously dying and Harroward was riling up the people with his seditious comments, we're told in the Gesta that Harroward's father went to the king and asked for him to send Harroward into exile. Now granted, it's always possible that Harroward's dad was just sick of his shit, and that Harroward really was just a messy, brash teenager who kept starting fights and stealing money out of his dad's wallet so he could impress his friends. But given the timing, and given the term sedition and all the things that surround it, I wonder if Harroward was a bold, courageous thane who wanted to support the Mercian cause. But his father just wanted to keep his son alive, and he couldn't control him. And this feels like it becomes increasingly more likely when you read later on in the Gesta, and you learn that his father hoped that his son would return from exile, and that he still expected Harroward to be his heir and to govern their lands, should he come home. I mean, I could be wrong here, but this whole thing sounds to me like his dad was saying, please, your highness, don't kill my son. Just exile him. But whether this was the result of a crazed teenage rebellion or whether this was an actual no shit rebellion, either way, in the end, Harroward was sent into exile and at least some of his lands were seized. And there's one other document that tells us that this probably wasn't the first time that Harroward got into trouble. Because the Nesswapen take states, quote, Harroward did not have Asfort's land in Barholm 100 on the day in which he fled, end quote. Which raises the possibility that he had lost at least some of his other lands prior to being exiled. Unfortunately, we're not given details, but if he was from a reasonably aristocratic family and he was agitating for resistance to the rising power of the Godwinsons, it's plausible that the crown, or even just his dad, tried lesser punishments like telling him off, finding him, taking land, that sort of thing. But he just kept going. And then in 1062, with the Godwinsons as the uncontested power in the land, and Harroward still being Harroward, well, everything changed, and the punishments for Harroward ratcheted up very suddenly. Now, our records for Harroward's time in exile come primarily from the Liber Eliensis, which came out of the monastic community at Ely, and from the Gesta Harrowardi, which came out of Peterborough Abbey. And both of these religious communities had links themselves to Harroward. But as we talked about earlier, the Gesta from Peterborough is a bit hinky, especially in the early portions. And part of that has to do with the fact that it was drawing material from a now-lost document regarding the early life of Harroward that was penned, apparently, by a man named Leofrich the Deacon. A different Leofrich, because Leofrich really was a common name. But unfortunately, while Leofrich the Deacon reportedly wrote this early account of Harroward's life, the material that he penned was highly suspect. Like, incredibly highly suspect. For example... We're told that after being exiled, Harroward traveled north, and there he fought a half-man, half-bear. Seriously. We're told that he fought a bear that had the head and feet of a man. I don't know why he had man feet, but apparently that's what he had. And everyone was so impressed that Harroward defeated the were-bear that all the ladies were singing and dancing about it, and he was even offered a knighthood. And I gotta be honest, that does not sound credible to me. 
And the extra fun bits don't stop there. We also find stories of Harroward going into exile in Cornwall, which would be weird since Cornwall was Godwinson territory at this point. So that would hardly have been an exile from the kingdom. But apparently, according to this record, he stayed there with a Cornish prince, which was impossible because Cornwall didn't have princes at this point because it had been annexed by England. But apparently, while there, Harroward made fun of the best fighter in the land for bragging about battles that he never fought in. And this wasn't appreciated, and he was challenged to a duel. In the fighting, Harroward fatally stabbed the other guy in the dick, which was a big no-no, and turned the public against him, and he ended up having to be put in prison. But the lady who'd been betrothed by the now-deceased dickless braggart helped Harroward escape because she hadn't really wanted to marry that guy due to how ugly he was. And now freed, Harroward fled to Ireland, where everyone, even the king of Ireland, was super impressed by how mighty he was in battle. Later on, he returned to Cornwall to help a Cornish princess who wanted to marry an Irish prince, and we're told that Harroward infiltrated the Cornish household by disguising himself as a minstrel in a very King Alfred way. And he was so talented with the harp that the chief entertainer threw an absolute fit. But the ruse still worked, and he was able to ferry the woman away to her new Irish bow. So yeah, this Leofrich guy really knew how to tell an engaging tale. Dick stabbings and man-bear battles make for thrilling stories, but not necessarily accurate ones. And I'm pretty sure that all of this is utter nonsense drawn from a collection of fables, Arthurian legends, and various myths that were being told around medieval fireplaces. Thankfully, though, with the Gesta, we have a lot more than Leofrich's fables. And as it moves on from the material drawn from Leofrich, we begin to learn of Harroward's exploits in Flanders. Now, the Gesta claims that he ended up in Flanders due to a couple shipwrecks first in Orkney, and then later in Sambertine in Flanders. Apparently, he was trying to get back to England, but was having as much luck in his voyage as Odysseus. But ultimately, despite the bizarre start to the story, it does appear that Hereward really did go to Flanders following his exile. Because of course he did. Flanders was the place to be if you were a down-on-your-luck English noble in this period of history. Honestly, it would have been weird if he didn't go to Flanders. And actually, once we get there, things get a lot more grounded. Partially because the author moved on from the material drawn from Leofrich. But also because the events and the people mentioned while Harroward was allegedly in Flanders can generally be verified. Meaning we know that many of the people and events regarding his time in Flanders are real. And that makes it much more likely that he really was over there. As for the details, it's hard to know what's real and what isn't. Some of it feels pretty shady, and the details can get over the top, and there are moments that seem like they belong in some sort of Arthurian legend. But there are also moments that are deeply unheroic, and things that, if they weren't believed to be true, you'd have to wonder why they were even recorded in the first place. As such, I think the story in the Gesta is worth knowing, because it does give the sense that at least some of this stuff is based in truth. But as always, we can't say for certain what is real and what isn't. Also, for the sake of transparency, this whole account is a little all over the place. 
So I'm going to shorten it up a bit and stick to the important details. But ultimately, whether or not Hereward played an important role in these events isn't as important as the fact that this period in his life does appear to have been the point where he gained a metric ton of experience. Think of this next bit like Hereward's training montage scene. Ready? Okay. So upon arriving in Flanders, Hereward sold his service as a mercenary to the Count of Flanders, and he fought as a soldier in Baldwin's conflict against the neighboring Count of Guillaume. Now, Hereward distinguished himself in battle, fighting for Flanders on a daily basis, gaining quite a reputation. And in one battle, he ended up fighting directly against a man named Hoybricht, who was either the nephew or the grandson of the Count of Guillaume, and he defeated him. Pretty soon thereafter, the Count of Guine surrendered. Meanwhile, back at Saint-Omer, a noble maiden named Turfrida was hearing about Hereward and was getting all kinds of butterflies about this mysterious foreigner. And she spoke openly about how she wanted to be with him. Now, this wasn't appreciated by a noble from St. Valery because he intended to marry Turfrida himself. And chivalry being chivalry, this rival nobleman made it known that he wanted to kill Hereward. And Hereward would have been fairly easy to find because at this point, without a war to fight in, he was keeping himself busy by attending tournaments at Bruges and Poitiers. And at one of these tournaments, he saw the nobleman. And growing tired of his nonsense, Hereward kicked his ass in said tournament and then rode out to meet with Turfrida. Because if someone's trying to kill you over a girl, you might as well see what the fuss is about. But unfortunately, this noble was a chivalric noble. He lost the girl and he lost in a tournament. There's no way he could let this go. So he set up an ambush to kill Hereward. But it failed, and Hereward and his companions killed over half of the men who had attacked him, and then they continued their ride to Terfrida. Once there, Terfrida confessed her love for Hereward. And then, to really hammer the point home, she brought him into her family home and showed him what he really wanted. Oh yeah. Quote, All her father's wealth of gold, silver, and other materials, and many things of her mother. End quote. Because Terfrida was rich as hell, and this was her dower. And Harrowward was into it. But this rival nobleman, ever the hopeless romantic, was still pursuing his love. And so he tried to have Hereward assassinated before their wedding, but that too failed. And so wedding bells, probably really nice silver wedding bells, were heard soon thereafter. But time marches on. And while Hereward was breaking hearts and getting rich as hell, something called Skaldamariland was busy telling the Count of Flanders that they weren't going to pay taxes to him anymore. And Professor Van Hout believes that Skeldamariland was actually Zealand, which is consistent with known Flemish history from this period, as well as certain naming conventions and linguistic aspects. And because Skeldamariland is kind of hard to say, I'm going to say Zealand from now on. So, the Count still wanted his taxes, regardless of how these islanders felt. So he sent an officer to Zealand to get his money. After some time, the officer returned to the count. Well, most of him returned to the count. He was missing his left foot as well as his right eye. 
As it turns out, they really didn't want to pay those taxes. The count, being a chivalric count, couldn't exactly let this slide. And so this meant war. And while his son and heir, Robert the Frisian, was part of the force, the Gesta claims that it was Hereward who actually commanded the army. In the fighting that followed, Hereward kept the spirits of his men up and bolstered their courage. And he insisted on being in the center of the fighting and placed his trust in the young men and youths that formed the vanguard. And that trust was well-placed because soon the army of Zealand was overcome. But Zealand wasn't done yet. Fuck Flanders and fuck their stupid taxes. And so they basically mustered everyone who could stand up and swing a stick. Like everyone. And this force was set upon the borderlands where they harried and ravaged everything they could reach. And then at some point, the Flemish army found themselves outnumbered and cut off by this army. Zealand sent terms for surrender. They said that the average soldiers could go home in peace, though they would need to leave all their weapons and equipment, except for a few ships and some tackle. Oh, and one other thing. Hereward, Robert, the Count's son, and all the other leaders of the army were to be handed over so they could be put to death. Now, the messengers, committed to the adage that one should work smarter, not harder, had brought some carts over to collect the goods from the army. And Hereward, upon hearing the terms, had his men set those carts on fire, which I assume was made to look like some sort of accident or perhaps like a rogue element within the army because the messengers stuck around and continued negotiations. And those negotiations, with the carts now burned, took quite a bit of time. And as the commanders carried out those lengthy peace talks, Hereward was secretly organizing the battle plans. After a while, the negotiations were completed, and the messengers were sent back to the Zealand lines, loaded down with as much plunder as they could carry from the Flemish army. Now, due to the mustering, the bulk of the Zealand army weren't trained fighters. They were just farmers and sailors who'd been given weapons. And now, seeing the approach of so much wealth, some of them rushed forward in an effort to get the best stuff and were suddenly ambushed by a secret force of 300 Flemish soldiers led by Hereward. The army of Zealand were outraged by the deceit and they planned for a counterattack even as Hereward retreated back behind Flemish lines. But what they didn't know was that Hereward had already gathered a huge cavalry force to him, and once out of sight, they began to cut a wide circle around the battlefield. And by the time the two forces had fully engaged, Hereward and his cavalry re-emerged behind the Zealand lines and set fire to the enemy camp and killed all who were left guarding it. This broke the army of Zealand, and they routed. The war was over, and Zealand paid tribute to Flanders. And with that, Hereward returned to his new bride. And considering how excited she'd been about his earlier campaigns, I'm betting he had quite the welcome. The girl had a type. And at some point during all of this, Hereward learned that England had been invaded and conquered by William of Normandy. But he really couldn't do much about that. He was busy fighting for Flanders, after all. But 
Now that the fighting was done, that kind of changed. Especially after he spent a few days without anyone to swing a sword at. Harroward was getting restless. And he wanted to know what happened to his family. And what happened to his father. And what happened to his lands. So, once again, he left True Frida. And in secret, he returned to England along with a single trusted companion. A man named Martin. But Harroward wasn't stupid. Even though the king who had outlawed him was dead, and his chief counselor, who was also briefly king, was also dead, the fact was that Harroward was still an outlaw. And these Normans weren't exactly the understanding type. So once he reached English shores, Harroward put on a disguise, and he secretly approached his homeland of Bourne. And in the evening, he finally reached the outskirts. And once there, he ran into one of his father's soldiers, a man named Osred, who didn't recognize him. Harroward asked the man what had happened here. The soldier told him that the Lord's son and heir had been sent into exile, and that while the Lord never gave up hope that his firstborn would return home and govern these lands, he died before that could happen. And in his absence, the younger son had taken up his father's mantle. And that must have been a hell of a revelation for Harroward. I mean, if his exile wasn't political, and it was just due to a conflict between he and his father that got out of hand, in the space of just a few moments, he'd learned that his father still loved him, that he'd wanted him to come home all this time, and that he had died before they could be reconciled. Heartbreaking. But Osred wasn't done. Next, he relayed the brutality of Norman rule, telling Harroward how the Normans had seized the family lands, and of how, only the other day, the Norman knights had returned, demanding what remained of the family wealth. And there, they had also forced themselves upon Harroward's mother. The youngest son, Harroward's little brother, acting as the head of the household, attacked the knights, killing two of them, but he wasn't able to overcome them all, and he was killed and beheaded. Leaving Osred behind, Harroward crept up to his family home in the dead of night, only accompanied by his companion, Martin. From within his family hall, he could hear the sounds of drunken revelry, so the knights were still here. Excellent. Harroward had spent almost his entire life in one conflict or another. And many times, it was someone else's fight that he'd simply adopted. Fighting was what he did. It was his profession. It was his lifestyle. But that was before his baby brother's head hung over the gate at his childhood home. Now this wasn't about fighting. This was about vengeance. And staying carefully out of sight, he collected his brother's head, kissed it, and wrapped it carefully in a cloth. And then he set about doing what he had come here to do. He snuck in through an unguarded entrance and quietly approached the knights. And behind him, he left his trusted companion, Martin, to guard the exit with a single, clear command. Let no one escape. Once inside, Harroward found the Normans near the fireplace. 
There were 14 in total. All of them were unarmed, and all of them were absolutely hammered. Some of them were lounging about in the arms of women, and clearly none of them thought they had anything to fear from the English. Good. Without warning, the exiled nobleman burst in, swinging his sword and lopped off the head of one of the Norman soldiers. Panic overwhelmed the hall as the unarmed knights tried to shake themselves out of their stupor and come to grips with what was now bearing down upon them. But Hereward wasn't finished, and he tore through the room, slashing and hacking at any men within his reach. Screams now echoed throughout the hall as some of the knights tried desperately to defend themselves with whatever they could get their hands on, while others, too drunk to even stand, looked on in horror, knowing that they were now at the mercy of this Englishman. And mercy was in short supply in Norman England. More knights were cut down. Some likely tried to flee, only to be intercepted and killed by Martin. Hereward and Martin were methodical and utterly ruthless. None were left alive. It was a bloodbath. And the next morning, everyone in Bourne had heard what had happened. And if you were an occupying Frenchman, and you just learned that 14 French knights had been assassinated in the night, what would you do? Probably the same thing that we're told of in the Gesta. Many of the Frenchmen abandoned the lands assigned to them and fled Lincolnshire, afraid that they would be next. Meanwhile, Hereward let his hometown know that he was back and that he was the reason the French were on the run. Hearing this, his kinfolk and other local people began to rush to join him. He took 49 of the most skilled and bravest recruits and ordered them to remain at the estate of Bourne to protect it from any retribution because that was a task he couldn't do himself. You see, he had other work to do. While many of the French had fled, all of them hadn't, and he wanted to spend a few days getting vengeance on those who remained. And with every day that passed, and with every manor stormed, and with every Frenchman killed, Harroward's army grew. And we're told that due to his time on the continent, Hereward was familiar with Norman ways, and he knew the arrogance of these knights. He knew that no matter how skilled or successful his army was, the French knights would assume they were superior, that they believed that anyone who wasn't knighted was pretty much worthless. And he wanted the French to fear him. And luckily, Wolf Hera, a monk from Ely, was a friend of the family and he was more than willing to carry out the rituals necessary to ceremonially knight Hereward's entire army. And as for Hereward himself, well, he was knighted by his purported uncle, Abbot Brand of Peterborough. Now let's pause the guest of very briefly. This knighting story is highly unlikely. The English didn't participate in continental chivalric culture during this period. And it's unlikely that Hereward's companions would have been all that bothered about getting proclaimed a knight. It's also not all that likely that the monks would have even known how to carry out the ritual. Instead, this was probably an inclusion within the Gesta to provide a bit of cultural cover for the Normans reading it. You see, the Gesta was written long after these events, and some Normans would have definitely been reading this. 
including Normans, who may have been descendants of figures who tangled with Harroward. And characterizing this rebel army as being comprised entirely of knights would have taken some of the sting out of the story for those Normans. Basically, the claim that Harward had a special ceremony that made him a horse dude would have made his success in the field much less embarrassing for Sir Ralph and his bros. Because now that God had officially recognized that Harward was all about that horsey life, he was also officially a worthy foe for the Normans. To be clear, though, it is entirely plausible that Harward did meet up with Abbot Brand and also potentially Monk Wolf Hera, and he probably did have ecclesiastical support. I'm just saying that the knighting portion would have been extremely weird, and instead it was likely just a way for the author to spice up the story a bit and provide the Normans with a bit of cover. Anyway, back to the Gesta. So Harroward and his followers were now in open revolt, and word of this would have quickly reached the halls of power. Pretty soon thereafter, stories began to trickle in of a stranger who was asking about Harroward. This man had brought with him a large company of soldiers, Bounty hunters, really. His name was Frederick, and he was the brother of Earl William de Warren. And this Frederick had been tasked with capturing Harroward and bringing him before King William for judgment. Or, if necessary, just chopping Harroward's head off and hanging it at a crossroads as a warning. The trouble, though, was that locating Harroward meant that Frederick had to go around talking to a lot of locals and asking questions. So this wasn't exactly a stealth mission. And that meant that Harroward heard about it. And while Frederick was in Norfolk, asking around, trying to find this rebel leader, the rebel leader found him instead. And Frederick had an interesting idea there, leaving ahead as a warning. And you know what they say, imitation is the highest form of flattery. And so Harroward flattered Frederick, and it was his head that was left to decorate a crossroads. But he couldn't deny it any longer. The Normans knew who he was now. Everyone knew who he was. And surely the king had sent more than one foreign noble to hunt him down. And so he determined that it would be best to lay low, regroup, and prepare for the next offensive. And so Harroward returned to Flanders, perhaps to recruit support from his friends and allies there. But as he left England, he promised his followers that he would be back within a year. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join us on Reddit. And you can find links to that and all our other communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 